All right. The date is September 20th. My name is the good Dr. Eric Trexler, the main host. But today I do have uh, an esteemed colleague, a member of the Mass Research Review Authorship Team. I'm here with the good Dr. Eric Helms. Two Eric's for the price of one, and the price happens to be free. Uh, Dr. Helms, can I call you Eric? I, if, if I can call you Eric, you can call me Eric. All right. Well, that will get confusing. So, Helms, how are you doing tonight? Trex, I'm doing well this morning on Thursday, the 21st of September, here in the future, down under, where I can tell you the future is bright. Awesome. Well, that's great to hear. That's really encouraging for when I wake up tomorrow. How many days out? For your competition. 19. No, bad math. See, that's what. That's how you know I'm actually very few days out, as I can't do basic math anymore. Nine days out. I'm nine days out. September okay. 30th. Yeah, w- yeah, when you're off by a sec, when you've doubled your time left, then that means you've got your prep, prep brain going uh, full steam here. It clearly just means I'm slightly behind on conditioning, and I wish I had another 10 days to diet. <laughs> yeah, so. some wishful thinking there. Um, well, awesome, man. Uh, I'm excited to see how you do. I'm sure you'll do great. And this is not your first rodeo by any means. Uh, and quite a competitive season for you, right? You got a few shows planned. Yeah. So something like, you know, I think we've talked about intrinsic motivation a lot, both you and I, in various different contexts. And I am highly intrinsically motivated by bodybuilding, um, which is, you know, strange for many considering what bodybuilding is, but it means, and has multiple different meanings to me, I integrated my identity. Um, and I find a certain level of meaning and joy in it that I think, um, not everyone can understand or does in the same way, but that's why it's cool. So with that said, I'm also a pretty competitive person and people who know me well know that's something I moderate and control and a goal of mine for a long time has to be to turn pro in the WNBF. Um, and I've been literally trying to do that for more than 10 years and getting very close multiple times, um, notably winning multiple divisions and going to overalls and then shaking the hand of often my colleagues yeah. <laughs> who have then gone on to get their pro cards and many times my, or our clients at 3DMJ. Um, and in 2019, I took a few shots on goal. And one unfortunate thing that, ha- that happened was I did some traveling and I didn't really think about which shows were not just convenient for my schedule and the location, but also were they going to be a big enough show to where there would be enough competitors to award a pro card. So this time I have really gone, you know what, let me put myself in the best position. So I have five total shows uh, from the 30th September all the way to WBF Worlds, which is mid-November. Um, including worlds and all of them are, uh, should give me an opportunity to turn, uh, or at least battle for the pro card. I don't even necessarily think that'll necessarily do it. Competitive natural bodybuilding, especially in WNBF, INBF is very competitive these days. Um, okay. and it's changed a lot since I've been involved in the sport. So obviously no guarantees, but I wanted to give myself as many opportunities as possible. Yeah. I've been there, man. I, I really wanted to be. I wanted that pro card in the WNBF and I won a WNBF pro qualifier and we were one competitor shy of the minimum number that you need for that pro qualifier to actually give out a pro card. 
And I was tempted to just grab someone out of the audience and say like, hey, you want to borrow my posing trunks? <laughs> you know, take your shirt off. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so close. And then there was one I was at a super pro qualifier where they gave out two uh, pro cards. And, uh, I, you know, I made the, the, the final five for, for the big showdown at the end. And I don't know exactly where I placed, but it was somewhere between third and fifth because I didn't get the pro card. Um, but yeah, man, it's tough. You get so close and, and then you drown your sorrows in pizza and donuts. Or no, you're not That's supposed right. to do that. You're not supposed to do that. Sorry. Correct. Well, I tell you what, I don't compete in bodybuilding these days, but I'm back in the academic world and I do that competitively. Uh, how's this for for making an impact helms i've been at duke for about a month right a uh, month or two they just released the u.s news and world report uh college rankings we moved up two spots already and that's just two months of work moved up from wow. number nine in the country up to number seven we're flirting with the Stan stanford's and the mit's up there and i've been telling my bosses that's just two months just wait until you see what happens after two years. So, I mean, I don't, they didn't say in the article how much of that impact had to do with me, but they also didn't say how much didn't have to do with me. So let your mind and imagination take over. All right, Helms, we're both being competitive and that's great. Are you frozen on my yeah. screen? I can't see you, but I can hear you. So that that's what's important. There we go. Um, at first, I thought you were just very surprised at what I had told you. I was just looking at a completely frozen face. Um, I tell you what, hey, we need to get into some questions here, right? Is there a, a particular question that you were enthusiastic about answering first? Oh, Helms, you're letting me down in a big way. I, ca I can't hear you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and answer a question and hope that New Zealand works out their internet problems within the next few minutes. So uh, one of the questions that I got uh, perusing the outline here that I was really enthusiastic about asking, uh, someone had asked me, uh, you know, we, we talk in the mass research review about all of these effect sizes. A lot of times in, in papers, as we're reviewing them in mass, we'll say, hey, you know, this intervention, they took this supplement, the effect size was 0.18 or the effect size was 0 0.32 um, and that's better than nothing you know a lot of times when people will talk about studies they'll just say there was a significant effect and it was good <laughs> right so that's about as vague as you can get with summarizing the result of a, of a study effect sizes are nice because they allow us to say not just did it work yes or no but they allow us to actually put a magnitude on that in a way that's standardized but the question that I got was, how do you translate an effect size into real world meaning or real world decision making? Uh, because it's kind of a catch 22. When we, uh, they, they finished their question by asking, how big does an effect size need to be in order to be worthwhile in quotes? Um, yeah. The catch 22 with effect sizes is that they're standardized. And that's fantastic for comparing to, you know, different interventions across different types of literature. It's really a, a terrific thing to have that standardization. The downside is when you standardize it, uh, it becomes kind of meaningless <laughs> in terms of, you know, hey, there's an effect size of 0.2. There is meaning there uh, in the literal sense, but a lot of folks who are not used to dealing with effect sizes, they're like, well, what do I do with that? And my answer is going to be perhaps very different from 
what some other folks would say, and that's okay. I think that's healthy. Um, there are some standard cutoffs uh, for effect size. Uh, if an effect size is between zero and 0.2, it's said to be trivial most of the time. 0.2 to 0.5-ish is usually said, I think, to be a small effect size. And then I think 0.5 to 0.8, they call it moderate. Uh, and then 0.8 or above, they often call it large. And here I'm talking about the Cohen's D family of effect sizes. And basically that means we're going to look at the, the mean effect here uh, and, and we're going to divide it by the standard deviation of the baseline measurement. So for example, uh, you know, if the uh, creatine group increases their bench, you know, by, I don't know, 10 kilograms more than the placebo group. So that mean difference there would be 10 kilograms. And we would divide it by, you know, what is the standard deviation of the bench press measures at baseline? So if it was, you know, a de standard deviation of 30 kilograms, 10 divided by 30, we get an effect size of 0 0.3333, 3, 3, 3, 3, right? Yeah. Or no. Yeah. So it's small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 0.3 repeating. Um, so yeah, we call it a small effect, right? Um, and so that's kind of the standard cutoffs. But it's important to ask whenever you have a standard cutoff or a standard threshold, where'd that come from, right? And most of the time in statistics, it, it's really funny because you trace it back and you say, where did this come from? Where, where did that come from? And it's usually like the first person who made this thing up said, eh, this should be fine. And that's really it. I mean, that that's pretty much how we did it with p-values. Like, why does everyone use 0 0.05? Because, you know, the early birds who were dealing with p-values first said, yeah, this should be fine. Um, with with uh, the the effect size cutoffs, again, it was kind of just a, a rule of thumb created for the, or, you know, just like a basic general heuristic, general guideline, specifically created for the social sciences, uh, if memory serves. Um, but people have used that and that's totally fine. But to answer the question of, you know, at what point does an effect size become worthwhile? I don't like to give a general answer to that. I don't think that there is kind of a one size fits all answer. And the reason being, whenever you're thinking about doing an intervention, um, so thinking about changing your diet, changing your training, trying a new supplement, whatever the case may be, you have to do a really specialized and individualized cost benefit analysis. And so the question of, you know, is this worthwhile has nothing to do really, well, has something to do with effect sizes, but you're not just going down a list of effect sizes and say the big ones are worthwhile and the small ones aren't. Because there may be a big effect size for something you're interested in, but that intervention is prohibitively risky or you know prohibitively expensive or simply not accessible to you, right? So the effect size is big, but you're not doing it, right? Because if it's you know an effect size of 0.3, but it costs $40,000 and it's to make your bench press higher, I don't know a lot of folks who are spending forty thousand dollars to get their bench press up. Uh, at the same, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there could be very feasible interventions that you very much enjoy that are free, that are totally accessible. You might even like doing them more than doing nothing. Like you might find that you're doing this intervention to have some positive effect on a, a tangible outcome, and as you're doing it, say, "I just kind of like doing this, even if it didn't make me better at my competitive activity. I'd still be doing it because I like it." You know, and so in that case. Any effect size that is not seriously negative is worthwhile, right? Like it, you could be doing mm -hmm. something that's not making you better at all, but if the effect size is zero and you just happen to like doing it, 
then that becomes worthwhile just for the joy of doing it, right? And so um, that's a long way of saying how big does an effect size need to be to be worthwhile? I just don't think that that is the way I, I evaluate worthwhile. Uh, Helms, how do you feel about that? I like where you're coming from. And uh, just real quick, is my audio working? We're good. Yeah, you're good. You're good. New Zealand got it figured out. I'm happy for Beautiful. you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, I, um, I, I really like it when authors go to the trouble to try to meta-analyze things in the same units when they can. Mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful or when it's appropriate to actually get percentage changes. Um, that kind of makes this whole thing much more understandable. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think you you gave a great explanation. And th- I think it's, it's really useful to provide that kind of qualitative nuance to something that sometimes we get a little too quantitatively rigid about. Um, it's funny, I think this is a total aside, the nature of science um, is that we have to speak probabilistically when we're talking about groups and um, that it needs to be then interpreted in practice, especially with translational research. But the brains who are att- attracted to science hate doing that, even though they actually have to be fully embracing of it. And it's funny how I think that's also true of many people in the quote-unquote evidence-based community. Like we really want to latch on to hard numbers and cutoffs and be like, all right, this is a small effect and I will interpret it only as a small effect. Um, and I think that's, or like, you know, P less than 0.05, P greater than 0.05. You know, there's many examples like that. Um, and I think, um, the appropriate and probably best interpretation of also a messy field where we're dealing with low sample sizes and a fair amount of uncertainty is to really just kind of let go of that need. And to do things like look at confidence intervals, to look at p-values as basically a continuous item in relation to the sample size and things like that. It's not comfortable. And you will get some people who are much more analytical minded, like, no, no, we need cutoffs. We need thresholds. Or how could we interpret it? And when you interrogate that, I think it's very hard to justify that ultimately. Yeah. Um, So I, I tend to agree. And getting back to effect size, if someone told me, hey, the effect size is 0.21. And they say, oh, sorry, I misspoke. It's actually 0.19. Those are the same thing to me. Trivial. And they're the same Duh. thing. Uh, but but they fall on opposite sides of a, of a threshold, yeah. right? And so if you were making a threshold-based decision, you would switch your choice based on okay. the fact that that person misspoke, which is really hard to defend. Um, yeah, but I will say, just to, I'll, I'll give my kind of deep answer and then my superficial one if it's a supplement i really want to see it at least close to point two you know as mm-hmm. kind of my starting point like when i look at supplements the ones that i tend to say ah, oh, it might be worth a try it usually is the ones where it's at least like 0. 0.15 0. 0.2 and above and there aren't that many that actually get over that bar on a consistent basis i mean you're talking about a select few yeah I, to dovetail on that real briefly, I have almost a different um, metric of evaluating whether something is worthwhile in practice when I assess supplements versus any almost any other practice. Yeah. So if it's something like a recovery modality, like, oh, should I form roller stretch or should I go on a, a walk for active recovery or is it worth trying mindfulness or, um, you know, should I throw a, a heavy single on top to maybe get a, a PAP benefit or, or whatever? Um, all of those, if it is 
if there's not any evidence that shows any likelihood of harm, and there's even a theoretical potential of benefit, I'll say, sure, go for it. Give it a shot. It might work for you. You know, um, you want to try slightly higher proteins than we generally think, you know, it's probably not going to be harmful. You've got an unequal distribution favoring the, the quote unquote neutral positive thing we all love in the evidence-based community. For supplements, I actually do not operate that way. Um, and I think it's especially important for anyone who's interested in health and especially drug tested athletes, because we have more and more data coming out, just showing how there's a non-negligible risk of inadvertent doping failures. And they've, they've actually been surveys of this looking at different, um, uh, in, in, through different methods and like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a notable number and it, it's kind of scary, you know? So for me, considering supplements are only going to have the potential to do, do, to do so much, I want to have like meta analyses of the at least double digit numbers and showing a reasonable effect and showing no potential harm. And then I also want to do things like, oh, and can I make sure that I can get this from a place that I trust? Because the potential upside is so small with supplements for what yeah. it's going to potentially do for you. And the neutral is also potentially a negative in that context. So I'll leave it there. But yeah, that's yeah. the my general perspective. No, I, I agree with that entirely. Definitely good stuff to add on there. Um, I've got one more question I want to throw out up here and then we'll kind of open it up. I might even let you pick one before the night. Sure. Over. How kind. Uh, yeah. The uh, the next question, I wanted to make sure I get to these two because I've been excited to answer them. This one is, how quickly can you lose weight without losing any muscle at all? And then flip side of that question, how much total weight can you lose without losing any muscle at all? Um, and then a kind of a third wrinkle to that, how do we try to prevent muscle loss when we're losing weight? Um, and in the question... Uh, the individual kind of explained a heuristic of like, oh, you can lose this much per week if you have this much body fat. Um, by the eye test, it looked like it was fine, decent enough, um, but it's it's not the way I like to frame the question. So I don't think that there's really a good numerical heuristic where we can kind of create the sliding scale based on body fat. Um, so let, let me go ahead and answer the question, question in a more general way, and I'll, I'll see what how you feel about my numbers, Holmes. I think sure. for many years, the kind of general heuristic that a lot of people have have leaned on, the kind of default knee-jerk answer, I believe is usually 25% of weight that's lost is typically going to be fat-free mass. Um, and I, is that, I think that's in, pe in just like general weight loss studies without resistance training. Is that correct? Yes. That's, yeah. that's where that comes from. Yeah. And so that normally does okay. Um, my, my hunch is that, or I mean, my things I've observed in the literature is that it tends to be in many cases, a little higher in males than females. Like it, it's not that unusual to see males with, you know, no resistance training, low protein, which is just normal folks protein, not like, you know, bodybuilding type protein intakes. It's not that unusual to see 25% fat-free mass loss end up getting closer to sometimes 35, 40, and even higher in individual cases. We expect that with sampling error. You're going to, it's not always going to be exactly the same. It's going to fluctuate around the average. But I do tend to notice in many cases a higher fraction of weight loss is fat-free mass in males and females. 
And I think that's most pronounced in the physique athlete literature. Th those case reports in physique athletes, there's a very pronounced difference. Um, I don't think the difference outside of such extreme scenarios is quite that big comparing uh, among the sexes. Um, so all of that is to say, I think for fat-free mass, you know, it's not unusual to see males losing a little more than 25% uh, of the weight lost as fat-free mass. Females often a little bit, you know, right around there, sometimes a little bit lower. And then we have to keep in mind that only a percentage of that is actual muscle tissue, right? So we might find that if males are losing, you know, 30, 35% of weight as fat-free mass, maybe only 20, 25% is actually muscle, right? And then for females, maybe only 10 or 15% is actually muscle. And the, you know, the remainder is just kind of other tissue that's not muscle and it's not fat, right? So that's my general answer, but then we have to put a huge caveat that that number really doesn't apply that much to any particular individual. I mean, it's one of those weird um, scenarios where it's the best guess broadly, but from an individual perspective, it's hard to call it necessarily useful other than just to kind of set basic expectations. And the reason I say that is, Helms, we've reviewed this in mass before. If you include resistance training, that number is thrown out the window completely, uh -huh. uh, especially if there's adequate protein intake. And then it entirely depends on the training status and experience of the individual and their, their genetic predisposition to muscle building. There are plenty of folks who, if we just put them right into a weight loss program and they just started lifting and we give them a plenty of protein and they're not used to eating plenty of protein, we're going to gain muscle dur during that weight loss phase. We just will. Um, there are going to be some folks who hold all their muscle, um, even like, you know, pretty intermediate lifters in some cases can do a really good job holding a really substantial amount of their muscles. So all of that is to say, you know, 25%-ish is kind of the standard number. But once you throw these individualized factors into the mix, it kind of goes out the window because it all comes down to over the next 12 weeks, as you're in this deficit, what is your potential to build or maintain muscle mass? And that's going to depend on a few things, rate of weight loss, uh, protein intake, resistance training. Uh, those are kind of the three big ones. And then in, in the long term, how much total weight are you losing, right? It's going to be hard to lose 100 pounds and not lose an ounce of muscle or fat-free mass. So at a certain point, the, the total magnitude comes into play as well. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's probably my best estimate. And then just to give a recommendation there, um, you know, protein to facilitate retention of muscle mass, uh, you know, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram is usually pretty good. Um, if you're absolutely shredded. Um, one of the two of us did a great systematic review about that scenario. If you're shredded, cutting really hard and the upper, the upper, uh, kind of end of the, the spectrum that you gave, it was scaled to fat free mass, not body mass, common error that I've seen in a lot of papers that are citing yours, uh -huh. calling that body mass. Um, but I think the, the top end was 3.1. Yeah. Yeah. It was what we did is we just looked at the specific studies that actually reported changes in lean mass, mm -hmm. converted it to lean mass, and then just favored the ones where we saw non-significant losses or no losses and reported that range. Yeah, It's very, very pseudo-quantitative analysis. By no means is it um, should be taken as 
equivalent to like a meta analytic finding, but it's, yeah. uh, I think a, a, a reasonably well-informed, probably out of date now that it's to 10 year old systematic review. But even if we said, Hey, we have unequivocal, sorry, we have uh, equivocal data on whether or not, uh, being lean and dieting while being highly active requires or benefits from higher protein from a muscle retention standpoint, I think you can make an argument that, uh, slightly higher intakes produce diets that might be slightly more satiating or palatable or, or uh, conducive for other reasons based upon a few data points. But I will say I don't fall, in, fall into like the Antonio camp where it's like, hey, you know, like really, really high protein diets elicit these kind of uh, magic satiety and body composition changes um, primarily when we're also looking at overfeeding, not being restricted. Um, and I don't really think someone should go above, say, like three grams per kilogram. And right. they would need some good individual data for that because you're necessarily on a budget, yeah. right? So I think the impact on satiety, uh, training quality, and physiological function, there's a potential risk when you're dieting. when you're Because as you go up in protein, you're necessarily coming down. Uh, in either fat or carbs. And I think the potential benefits of going from 2.5 grams per kg to three are, for most people, not worth the potential risk of coming down 0.5 gram per kg uh, in, in carbohydrate or 0.2 or whatever it is in fat. So I think um, that is one of the things that I would probably add a little more color to if I was to rewrite that systematic review today. N- not that it's not in there, but I, I would just emphasize it more. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, you and I will do an update to that, change a little bit of grammar, add one or two studies, boom, new paper, right? That's Easy. the way we keep these publications going. That's the way Duke goes to number five and number seven, right front. So um, the other thing we should mention, though, um, you know, I, I mentioned that you probably don't want to rush too much if the goal is to maintain uh, muscle mass. Probably don't want to go too aggressive with the size of the caloric deficit. Are you still in the like half a percent to one percent of body weight per week? Is that still where you're at with the rate of weight loss? Yeah, and I think the data is still supporting that as it comes out more and more. So for those who aren't aware, there's a, we covered this in mass too. There's a, a meta regression that was done by Murphy and Kohler that came out last year, um, where they looked at at what point did you. Uh, did did an energy deficit actually impair gains in lean mass, which is cool because that means the supposition is, yeah, you absolutely can gain lean mass while dieting. And that's observed a ton of times all over the research, despite that common uh, belief that it's just impossible once you're in a deficit. Um, And and by the way, quick shout out to uh, Chris Barakat and colleagues. They had a great review paper on I think they did a great job kind of dispelling that myth of saying, well, mm-hmm. everyone says this is impossible, but what about all this? <laughs> and then you yeah. had all these tables of data where people are are building muscle while losing weight. And almost exclusively on trained people. Yeah. Um, very good, very good review on body recomposition and strength conditioning journal. But anyway, this other meta regression by Murphy and Kohler, um, you know, regression, meta regression, so big regression of many studies. Um, they were just looking at at what point did you stop seeing lean mass gains? And while there's a ton of uh, variability around the point estimate, it's around a 500 cal- kcal per day deficit was the point where you started to see um, no longer being able to gain lean mass. So still retaining it. Um, and I'm sure 
you know, if it has a different research question, at what point do you lose it? We'd see some higher value. And for most people of average body weight of 500 kcal deficit, will have them right in the middle of that range at 0.5 to 1% of their body mass per week. So I, I still think that is appropriate. Um, a couple other things that I think are really interesting to add some color and nuance to what you already established, which I totally agree with, is that it is technically impossible to lose fat and not lose some lean mass. There's a cool paper by uh, Abe, Danko, and Lenicky that came out in um, 2019. And it's something like uh, obligatory loss. No, it's a body fat loss that's automatically reduced lean mass, I think is the title or something very similar to that. But they pointed out that adipose tissue has a lean mass component. So even if you lose pure adipose tissue, um, you will lose some lean mass. And this is something that is much more observable when you're losing large amounts of lean mass. So the real question is, is the amount of lean mass that a person with obesity is gaining while doing resistance training offsetting that? Um, so I think that's pretty cool. They just made some very cool observations in that paper. Uh, Tinsley kind of did the inverse of that paper, that gaining body fat will also have an obligatory increase in lean mass. They did some validation of that with, uh, with, with, with their research. So I think body composition is always a little more complex than we uh, acknowledge. And the last thing I'll say, Eric, is that I'm not 100% sure that the physique studies show a sex difference or potentially a division difference. Yeah. Um, because all of the male studies are on the bodybuilding division and only a few on men's physique. Uh, and they have a, typically the judging standard is, is requiring a certain level of leanness that even when you account for essential body fat differences in men and women is not the same as say the figure division or the bikini division. And there's very few female case studies on female competitive bodybuilders. And I would actually like to see in the future if, and, 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 if is a big question because again it's a, it's a not very popular division unfortunately if we got more of those case studies done would that difference still be there and i'm not sure it would you know it'd be interesting um a lot of those studies in male physique athletes have pretty good documentation of lean mass losses like the timeline right we don't just have start and finish it'd be interesting yeah. to look at like okay if you cut it short as a physique athlete rather than going to the bodybuilding division, what, what will we have seen there? You know what I mean? If we, if we kept you at like, you know, you fill in the, the body fat percentage based on the, uh, the, you know, the measurement device, but that, that would be a very interesting thing to look at for sure. Um, but I agree, well, like there's definitely, um, something weird happens when you start grinding out the last few pounds. There's no question. Well, those who are following at mass research review, Instagram, they might have seen that I've been doing a weekly, except for the weeks I forget and don't post anything like last week, a weekly, every single week, never missed, uh, mass blast from the past. And I covered a cool uh, review paper by Elia um, back in 99, which did all these different comparisons. When you were individual your 40th birthday when that came out in 99. That was correct. Yeah. AKA April. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's really cool because it has all these different ways of looking at um, substrate metabolism uh, in total during total starvation in individuals who are as low as 10% body fat or slightly lower or up to 40, 50% body fat. Um, and the marked differences in protein metabolism as well as glucose metabolism, which is basically 
protein metabolism because a lean individual is doing like four times the amount of gluconeogenesis and just converting a ton of protein to glucose. You see uh, leucine oxidation almost twice as high. You see the proportion of BMR coming from protein metabolism being multi-factors higher. So you can understand that the, the lower the body fat you have, the less your body is able to make up for your energy needs using adipose tissue. So where is it going to come from? And it's only going to push your glycogen so low. And, you know, uh, so, so it, it really does make sense that we, I would, I would predict a nonlinear relationship between leanness and lean mass losses. And I have seen that qualitatively looking at the research and argued for that in that, even that same systematic review, but I don't know that anyone has ever actually done a good analysis of this. I think the closest thing was some of the P ratio arguments that you had, um, with, with, uh, with Mr. Henselman's. Yeah. Yeah, Me neither. Um, but that was almost the inverse question. You know, like if you're a leaner, do you gain more lean mass? And this is, I think far more established. Everyone's on the same page. You're leaner, you lose more lean mass, but I don't know that it's truly been explored in any kind of robust statistical way and including physique athlete data. Cause I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. But on the, on the flip side, one thing I would add there. So mm. when we look at the other end of the spectrum, I often hear people say, yeah, you know, 1% of body, you know, 1% of body mass per week is a suitable rate of weight loss. But like, I have a lot of weight to lose and I got places to go. Yep. Right. And so then people will say, but yeah, but if I'm, if I've got 150 pounds to lose, I should be able to do 2%, two and a half, three percent 3% of body weight per week. And in theory, sure. But remember, as body weight goes up, that two or two and a half or three percent becomes a bigger number. And at the end of the day, there's not much we can do to change the fact that a kilogram of fat has about 9,100 calories in it. And so when you start actually crunching the numbers in some of those scenarios, and you start getting to the spot where you're saying, well, I want a big enough deficit that I'm going to lose three and a half pounds this week. Dude, that is a huge deficit on a daily basis. And you start putting it together in practical terms and the theory goes out the window because it's like, well, no. if you weigh you know, 380 pounds, do I really feel good about putting you on a 700 calorie diet and saying, well, we'll just do this for a couple of years and then we'll be there, <laughs> right? Like it's, so yeah. there's practical elements where where you start to realize that you know even even if you have plenty of weight to lose the rate of weight loss is not just going to you know go infinitely upward and and usually it's it's pretty tricky to start uh, introducing a caloric deficit that's going to have you losing more than about two or two and a half pounds per week of fat mass. Now you could lose two yep. pounds a week of weight, but of actual fat mass, like you know you'll do your first few weeks, you'll get those water losses, and then you'll say what happened, right? And it's like, well, you didn't, you didn't have a big enough definite, you know, the water losses were really um, exaggerating your perceived energy deficit. But when you start to get into like week 16 in a row of trying to lose two and a half or three pounds a week, that deficit, it just gets brutal. And, and so for most people, like I said, about two, two and a half pounds, you get, you can start getting too far above that for fat loss per week. And it starts getting um, pretty unrealistic pretty quickly. Yeah. I think for people relatively high in body mass, uh, it almost makes more sense to do uh, a, like a 10, 20, or 
calorie deficit. Mm -hmm. So if you're eating 3000 calories, that's, you know, 300, 600 or 900 calorie deficit. So you're eating 26, uh, 23 or my, my, my math is bad. 27, um, 23 or, or 2100 uh, calorie deficit type of deal. Again, my math is off there in a few spots, but you get what I'm saying yeah. because then you're scaling it to your energy intake um, rather than if you know your maintenance, of course, that's from maintenance uh, rather than just the body mass targets, which get inflated and energy expenditure doesn't scale linearly with body mass. There's a point where it actually starts to come down because it's actually quite challenging when you're living in a bigger body to have as much activity because you're I mean, if you ever talk to a bodybuilder or someone who's decided to do a whole lot of rucking or weigh like a weight, replace their weight loss with a weighted vest, um, it's an interesting thing in theory, but in practice, it is actually very hard to walk around all the time with a 10 kilogram weighted vest on. Um, so just imagine what it's like if that's something more equivalent to a 50 kilogram, you know, weighted vest. It's, it's a challenge to move around that much. And that's one of the things that um, people with a lot of weight to lose do have to face and something that a lot of us really can't relate to very well. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, I want to grab something from the live chat here. Um, yeah, we got a good, some good questions in here. Yeah, absolutely. I have to acknowledge Ashley, who's listening to this while coding an R. Um, oh. I'm always going to give a shout out if people are coding and listening. Um, Ashley, you should check out some of the, um, some of the, uh, large language model related tools for coding in R, the, the chat GPT related uh, resources and plugins. Some of them are actually pretty good. Uh, I hate to say it. I, I wish that, uh, you know, all my many years of painfully reading source, uh, you know, uh, PDFs from the people who made all the libraries. I'm afraid that some of those hours have been wasted because some of those models are actually really nice for that. Um, we got someone uh, listening from Chile, which is very, nice. very cool. Appreciate you listening from Chile. Uh, Helms, have you found a good question in there that you'd like to answer? Yeah, here's a good one from, uh, let's see, Floral Frey. Provided your programming is well-rounded and you utilize progressive overload and stay close to failure, can you keep doing the same exercise variations slash accessories forever or is some variety beneficial? Now, I think it's important to make a distinction between variation and a variety. Um, so variety could be a fixed number of, like I eat a variety of foods, but it might be always the same variety. Uh, variation means that there's an intentional change into those exercises over time. And I think this is both goal dependent and also personality dependent. And also it is dependent upon what stage of learning you're in. So, I'll go through each one of those. So first, let's talk about uh, goal dependency. If your goal is strength or performance, um, then you can have a much narrower uh, exercise selection based upon the specificity of the task that you're trying to enhance and then how far away you are from actually testing that task. This is mass, so I'm going to go ahead and use powerlifting as an easy example. Um, you're probably always going to be doing the big three in one form or another, a close variation of them to lower or higher, uh, specificity levels, meaning singles or threes, you know, closer to a one RM further from a one RM higher volumes of it. And that'll base, be based upon how close to the task at hand you're trying to get to. 
And then you'll think, okay, well, I also need more lean mass, more contractile tissue to give me a greater quote unquote strength potential. And maybe I'm not always going to be using the big three as the best vehicle for that. So my accessory movements that are maybe better vehicles for getting a lot of volume, which is probably more associated with muscle mass accrual, I'll use those. So there might be a back extension and there might be an RDL. There might be a, a safety bar squat. Hell, there might be a leg press. God, God forbid. Um, there might be a machine chest press, a close grip bench press, all those good things. Um, but essentially you're choosing variations, which you think will have some degree of, uh, structural advantage. You know, like if you're a sumo puller, a low bar squatter and a max legal width grip arch bench presser, you're realizing that you're not training as, as, as long of muscle legs. You go, okay, well, let me do, you know, like a Larson press for bench press. Um, let me do a high bar squat and pause on the bottom. This, uh, my point is, is that you will probably be smart to choose exercises which have a lower, as the kids call it, SFR. So uh, a lower amount of fatigue that comes with the given amount of volume you're doing. Maybe you don't want to actually load yourself, so you do a belt squat. You know, various decisions here that make it easier to grow muscle to support the powerless. Okay. Let's put that goal aside. So now we see the, why there's an argument for some variety for a power lifter. For a bodybuilder, however, now we are thinking that, like, is a calf raise an accessory movement? I'd argue no. You know, like, it is a muscle group that, that needs to be maximized proportionally, just like everything else. So there's not really such a thing as bodybuilding accessories. You have to just do all the muscles. Uh, you have to train all the muscles that you're going to get judged on. And then you have to really start thinking about functional anatomy. You couldn't just have a minimalist compound approach if you're a competitive bodybuilder because hip extension, yeah, you can use a deadlift variation to train the hamstring, but what about the short head of the, uh, of the bicep femoris? Oh, that's only a knee flexor, right? Okay. I'm only going to do squats though, right? That that's a great quad builder. Well, what about the rectus femoris? You know, that's, that's actually a biarticular muscle. It doesn't seem to grow when we look at studies on squats because it's also a hip flexor and that's going to be counterproductive to the glute extension uh, or the hip extension moment of the glutes. So, okay, I've got to do some type of isolated knee extension, some isolated knee flexion. I've got to train my calves. Maybe the shoulder press is you know, not a great exercise for the, the rear delts and it's okay for the medial delts and I want to do some lateral raises. Um, oh shoot, lateral raises, man, with dumbbells, those are always, those are really only giving me tension at the top of the muscle short. And okay, I want to do some crossbody cable lateral raises because that's a weak point on me. Oh yeah, the long head of my tricep, that's not going to be very active. Like I could list a litany of things, but uh, shown in multiple studies uh, empirically, when you have a greater variety of exercises, you get more proportional development. Um, and if you are trying to get targeted development in certain areas, even regional hypertrophy, there's an argument to be made for training at different angles, different grips. Uh, and you'd have to go through each one of these on a kind of case by case basis. Like there's, there's data showing incline press builds more clavicular head of the pec. So there's a lot. Um, so if your goal is hypertrophy, having more variety absolutely is a good idea. But I would say in neither two of these instances is variation, variation, not variety, mandatory. Now, variation can be potentially beneficial from a motor learning perspective. And when we look at some of the research on this, again, primarily not in um, lifting, but some of it is, uh, there's the principle of varied practice, which is a motor learning principle 
which suggests that instead of just practicing the skill in its purest form in a very repetitive fashion with no alteration, you can actually have better task and skill retention by taking variations on that and even random practice or block practice, um, changing it up. An example would be a dart thrower, right? You know there's a, sp there's a spot you're supposed to throw it at a certain distance. That's your competition. So why would you ever do anything besides that, right? I'm only going to stand on the line and throw darts, and I'm going to schedule it for 30 minutes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Well, we actually have data to suggest that if you varied the distance from the dartboard, if you made the dartboard smaller or bigger, um, and if you did it at different times and you changed up those distances randomly, two th interesting things would happen. A novice learner would learn the skill slower initially. Like if they were tested for task retention, it would be worse immediately. However, when trying to come back to the skill and looking at the retention of that skill over time, it's enhanced. So this is what's called, uh, it's leveraging what's called contextual interference. It's when you are trying to essentially re-remember and reconstruct the motor pathway that you're learning. And that process is actually improving the practice. Another way this, this can be implemented is by doing some other task between practicing the same task. So for example, one group just throws the darts and then sits quietly. The other group throws the darts, but then has to do math problems and it comes back to throwing darts. And it actually makes it harder for them to remember what they just did. So they have to re-remember more purposefully, which seems to more quote unquote deeply ingrain uh, those motor patterns. So there's various ways to get there. Um, but essentially having a little more variety during the active motor learning phase may be beneficial, especially for novices. I'm not as confident that that is necessarily the case for intermediate or advanced athletes. Um, but I think it's at least something you can leverage without a potential harm. You know, if, Eric, you, you were training for powerlifting around the same time, uh, as, as I have at different stages of my career, but the Shiko templates where you go like squat, bench, squat. Yeah. Right. If from a powerlifting perspective, we would say oh, that's that's a highly specific program. You know, there's no that's not Westside. Westside has the variety. This is very specific. Actually, that is a form of contextual interference if you think about it. Oh, I've got to get my brain back into squatting now after benching. I was focused on that. So you could use a very low variety of exercises, but still use very practice, which is a related concept. So that was a long answer to a relatively straightforward question. But I would say that there is potential benefit be benefits from um, variation, but not necessarily needing high variety for skill and performance-based tasks. And there is a requirement for, if you really want maximal proportional hypertrophy, for a high degree of uh, variety, but not necessarily in benefit from variation because hypertrophy is not necessarily related that much directly to motor skill development long-term. You just need to be sufficiently capable. You need to be a jack of all trades versus a master at the movements you're doing so that you can push hard and get close to failure uh, on your sets or reasonably close to failure and accumulate volume in a way that is sustainable. That's basically uh, the kind of the way to dichotomize it if we want to just look at uh, muscle mass accrual or strength accrual. Yeah, I mean, when you mentioned dart throwers kind of moving up their distance, it made me think of, you know, I've seen a lot of videos of high-level basketball players who are shooting from half court or even from out-of-bounds, which is like literally you will never make an out-of-bound shot because the rules prohibit it explicitly, right? And I've always kind of wondered, you know, is that just, are they just having fun, which is fine. A lot yeah. of practice time, might as well have fun. 
Is it for vanity? Like, oh, I can make it from all the way in the bleachers. But whether it's for fun or vanity or strategically leveraging that concept, probably some degree of, of benefit there, you know, might help out, even though it's an unrealistic shot that you're never going to take in a game, you know, still kind of working from different angles and distances um, on and off the court. You could see how that might be helpful. Um, Absolutely. And I would just say one more thing that for open skills uh, in motor learning, there's the differentiation between closed and open skills. Uh, open skills occur in a, a rough real world environment, you know, so for example, cutting in an actual game, you don't know which way you're going to cut the angle or the velocity that you're going to do it because you're facing an opponent and a hole opens up and you do it when you do it. So having varied practice for open skills specifically has a lot more empirical support because you need to have the ability to vary the skill and task execution. So you need this motor pattern to not be, it's not like in powerlifting where you do these rituals and you're trying to recreate the same environment every single time because it's a closed task. It is um, a reactive task that occurs in different environments. There may be a hole in the pitch or, or the turf uh, and you need to be in varied variations of the same body position to do it at different velocities, different joint angles and at different speeds. And it's all collectively needs to be within the same skill. And the way that you develop that is by making that skill robust to different external stimuli. And that is best accomplished by, by the type of practice we're talking about. And that, that has good support for it as well. Good stuff. I'm going to throw a question at you here. Okay. Let's we go. Talked about all that exercise stuff. Let's do a little nutrition here. So Veronica wants to know, does it make sense to add in a couple calories per week? Like, you know, just add in 20 or 30 calories per week. Um, let's say you're coming out of a diet or you're bulking up, or is it better to add like 200 calories at once? How do you, uh, how do you approach that, uh, specifically during a weight gain phase? Well, you have written extensively about the strong empirical support for reverse dieting and how you were a huge believer in it. Um, and I think I, I, I've always disagreed with you on this and I, I really wish you would have came, come down hard on No, but in all seriousness, you've actually done some great work on this, um, showing that a lot of what we attribute as a cause and effect might be a little reversed. So the act of actually adding calories, does that increase our energy expenditure or is that energy expenditure is going up and that allows us to increase our calories post-diet. Um, and I think a lot of it is, in fact, the latter. Um, there is an intrinsic relationship between your energy in versus energy out. And it's unfortunately something we don't have a whole heck of a lot of control over. And if you slow down your rate of calorie increase, you will slow down your rate of increase in energy expenditure, and you will view a slower accrual of mass and a slower proportion of the fat mass post-diet. But unfortunately, we don't have the ability to look over and into one other dimension where an alternative reality and version of you decided to go, you know, screw reverse dieting. I read Eric Trexler's article. I'm going to go up 200 calories and where you saw basically the same thing. So you might get there over 10 weeks of adding 20 calories a week or one week of adding 200, but ultimately you have a different maintenance energy intake that you can have at various energy intakes coupled with body masses. 
So uh, those factors are kind of intrinsically tied together. And there's probably only so much that you can be suppressed or elevated in any given body mass over a certain range. And you can slowly work yourself up to the top or you can slowly work yourself down to the bottom or quickly do it. And there's potential potential arguments, pros and cons for either way, but there's nothing magical going on here. So generally, what I would advise is making a relatively conservative, but not insanely conservative jump when you finish a diet up to something slightly above your predicted maintenance. And the only reason you do that is because you, if you're, if you're off, you don't want to accrue unnecessary body fat. But I think if you let go of any narrative of, uh, I'm building metabolic capacity, then you start to get in the realm of what's more reasonable. So I would say, try to shoot for say like a hundred calorie surplus on a predicted, uh, energy expenditure of where you think you'd be, and then see what happens for a couple weeks. And if you're not gaining weight, gaining weight, then you can bump things in the, on the order of like 100 calories and looking at like two-week averages. That's generally kind of in the realm of what I do in practice. So outside of the context of reverse dieting, if someone was just bulking, what what size jumps do you normally make when, when you say, okay, it's time to increase calories? Yeah, typically around 100. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's what I do. And uh, that, that can scale a little bit based upon body mass uh, to some degree. And and also how ad- adverse the person is to putting on fat mass. Yeah. Um, so I I find, and actually this is something that the recent um, weight gain study that we have as a preprint has made me revise my, my opinion on a little bit of just how feasible is it for people who are not like hardcore competitive bodybuilders to make very minute changes. So real quickly... Uh, what we found was that when we compared these three groups and they were small groups and it might've been better if we'd not had COVID and had larger groups, uh, of five or six people, there was a maintenance group that was trying to maintain the same body mass and the dietitian, our study, Steve Taylor, he was adjusting their nutrition on a biweekly basis based upon that goal or a group that was in a 5% surplus intended or a 15% surplus. And again, based upon very minute body body mass changes in the 5% group or, or larger ones in the 15% group. The mean weight gain in the 5 and 15% group was the same. So what that tells me is that on average, your typical person, even once they've had an RD consult with them and, and guide them and help them and teach them how to track, walk them through my fitness pal, give them a spreadsheet and a very experienced uh, RD and also like trained lifters who have gone through a maintenance phase. So it's not like they just came into this cold, you know. And honestly, uh, like in a study, you're on your best behavior. Like you want to be yes. as good as you can because you've got, you're going to walk into that laboratory and have to answer for, for what you've done, right? I mean, like people often say they're hiring an online coach for accountability. And it's like when you're doing a study like that, you, I mean, you are in the so, lab interacting. And I would say it's even to a greater extent uh, in terms of... um yeah, just the the kind of intrinsic pressure people put on themselves to to nail it when they're doing those studies. You know, the funny thing is we might have circumvented that a little bit um, because the training, gr- the group that was training the participants was blinded to the nutrition protocol they were on. So every participant mm-hmm. was instructed when they come to the lab to yeah. train three times a week, don't talk to us about your diet. But they were still having to report into to Steve on a regular basis. So it's yeah. very similar to, to online coaching. Yeah. So absolutely 100% agree. But um, what that tells me is that a 5% surplus um, is probably too small to, 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 to not turn into a slightly larger or slightly smaller surplus, right? 
So I think, um, like you can certainly make the argument, oh, I want to make lean mass gains. And when I look at the data, larger surpluses primarily are associated with gaining adipose tissue. So I really am just going to increase, you know, like 10 carbs a week or, or at most, you know, 25 carbs a week. Actually, that that's more reasonable, I would say. Like, so for me, I think the the threshold that I think is easy and that people can can associate amounts of food with, because we don't eat macros, we eat food, is around 100 calories. That's a slice of bread. That's a piece of fruit. You know, that's a scoop of whey. So it, it, it those that that's a it's a it's a numeric value that that is a nice round number, and it also matches with small amounts of food that we add to our diet that are, are pretty easy. So I, I think anything less than that is, um, is practically not feasible. You can do it. And, you know, I've heard Lane, Lane Norton describe this kind of like this. Yeah, there's, there's error, but the cloud is kind of increasing. So your, your variation is going up, but I think in practice, um, I'm not sure it operates that way super effectively. And I think there could be wasted time, not wasted. It's not like you can't gain muscle if you're at maintenance, but, um, I think it is probably more psychologically satisfying to be like, oh, okay, cool. I'm we're we've been plateaued. I am going up 100 calories at least, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I've I've done uh, a contest prep where I didn't track anything, calories, protein, anything, and it was the same kind of. I mean, without even really thinking about it, as I was making changes, it was removing units of food. Like I had a pretty set selection of foods I like to eat, and it's like you were getting at. I had to kind of think about in food units, what is a meaningful reduction in calories? And then, you know, the opposite would be true in the case of of kind of bulking up, like adding an apple to my lunch, for example, would be, I think, a, a pretty suitable, small, but meaningful increase in calories, right? But um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree, especially when it comes to the, the psychological perspective, whether or not it's effective, and I think you raise good points about why in many cases it won't be. Um, mm-hmm. I think I don't want to live in a world and I don't want my clients to live in a world where they think we really are going down to the units of like 15 calories a day. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that reinforces a level of precision. Like how do you walk away from a pan that isn't bone dry that Uh has a little bit of oil coating it? Right. I mean, like you start to look at like, where could 15 calories go? And it's in your pan. It's if you switch from this food source to that food source on if it fits your macros and one of those labels was just a little bit more accurate. I mean, yep. it, I reviewed a paper in mass. Uh, I did a research brief not not long ago looking at, you know, it was a small study. So I'm not saying I'm not going to make a super confident claim here, but the study indicated in a short time scale, small sample, by changing food sources and fiber content and fiber sources, uh, there was a small, or, well, there was a noticeable change in the gut microbiome, which had a, an effect on the actual extraction of calories from the diet and the energy content of the people's feces changed. And the estimate in that study was that essentially a little bit over hundred calories vanished. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. like, I mean, not vanished. I mean, they figured out where it went, obviously not, not the most pleasant way to do a study figuring out where those calories go, but uh, they collected the fecal samples and were able to say, yeah, you even if you ate the same exact things, you are getting 100 fewer calories from your diet now because of the changes that have occurred. 
Um, like I said, I that was actually just real quick. That yeah. was actually also shown in a 2022 study by Bao and colleagues on time restricted feeding. Mm. So they had a, a five and a half hour feeding group, and they were losing. I want to say something like uh, a, there was a 22.7 percent increase in fecal energy loss and a 14.5 percent increase in urine energy loss. Yeah, just from eating the same foods. And then this is in a metabolic ward too. Yeah. And they were collecting urine, they're collecting feces. They took 12 individuals crossover. So the same person too, eating the same foods and just going, right, I'm only going to, I'm going to give it to you all in a five hour window and the body going, oh man, you've really created a traffic jam. Well, I'm not going to fully process everything. And they found, okay, that resulted in roughly a a 3% difference in energy expenditure or sorry, energy, um, energy intake, how much was actually processed. And they... By their calculations, that explains something like two-thirds of the weight loss that occurs in TRF studies. Wow. I don't know if that's accurate because yeah. it's only 12 people. I would, if I had to guess, if we increase the sample size and went long-term, you'd probably see less fecal energy losses. you get better at processing a lot of food at once, and it would come down to differences in like uh, satiety, which has been shown like by Moro. Yeah. But it seems like that, like that, that's a non-negligible amount, you know, yeah. over time. So that's the same foods. Which yeah. is just crazy to me. Anyway, go ahead. That is crazy. And I, I like the caveat you put on there because I often see papers, I don't fault them for doing it, but they'll, they'll often say like, oh, like I saw a paper that said like a 40 calorie per, I think it was 40 calorie per day surplus fully explains the obesity epidemic, right? Because it's, well, you compound that year over year over year across all these people. And it's like the big assumption there is that your expenditure will not change at all. And of course yeah. it will, right? Like- as your body gets bigger, like we know that there are adaptive things that, you know, we're not only changing, you know, you're not going to keep that 40 calorie surplus in perpetuity, right? So all of that is to say, you got to be careful with some of the extrapolations of like, we saw this in a short time scale. And if we draw that out over 40 years, it's like, yeah, but will everything else stay the same? But uh, that was just an aside. But yeah, the, the way that I like to approach it, um, I'm going to use a gambling reference. If that works for always you. love, I, I love gambling. Uh, so I don't gamble, um, Neither do I. <laughs> but you know, me Helms, I like data. I like statistics and I really love college football and I follow the, the betting lines like crazy. My wife is terrified that I'm going to start gambling on sports and, and just like, you know, we're never going to retire. Just all the money's gone. But, um, I just love following it from a statistical perspective. I think it's fascinating. But as a result of following the the predictions and then kind of reassessing them after the games, you also get some of the terminology and the vernacular that people use in the gambling world. So everyone who gambles on sports, they have what they call a unit. And that's like the the fixed unit of money that they bet. And so like someone will say, oh, I'm going to put two units on that game. And if you have a lower betting budget, your unit is... $20 or $10. If you're, if you're like a multi-zillionaire, maybe a unit for you is $10,000, right? But it's a way for people to kind of standardize when they're talking about how confident they feel about an outcome. You know, so because if a rich person puts 500 bucks on it, they that doesn't really tell you much about how much they value it. But if they say, I right. put six units on that game, you say, whoa, right? Like it's kind of a standardized betting gotcha. unit. Um, but anyway, that's kind of the way that I approach um, if, if I'm, you know, whether I'm losing weight or gaining weight, I kind of set based on my situation or the situation of my client, Client, what is our caloric unit here? Like when we're cutting, what is a meaningful 
but not overly aggressive unit of calorie change that we're going to utilize. And it usually ends up being somewhere in the range of 100 to 200 calories. There will be instances where I change that unit uh, or I change the size of it uh, because I want to say, okay, I know that this person is really nervous about weight gain. So in our bulking phase, we're going to trim that up a little bit, right? So I, there's room to individualize it, but I will say I usually kind of, for the individual in their circumstances, we kind of settle on a unit of energy change that makes sense for what we're trying to do. It's usually one to 200 calories because I don't like messing around with stuff that's like add 10 calories. Um, I just think it reinforces a lot of bad psychological outcomes. Um, so we can adjust it if we need to, but usually we kind of we kind of settle in on that and we let it ride throughout the duration of a cut unless we start to realize, oh, hey, we're, we're really falling behind schedule. For some reason, we've got a fixed end date in mind. We're going to have to bump that up a little bit. But that's kind of a, just like a practical way that I like to do it. Um, and, and it seems to work out really well where um, people start to feel really comfortable that they can understand what we're doing and anticipate when a change is coming. Because people don't really like uh, to be on the edge of their seat, right? Like if, if someone is controlling your diet and your diet um, for a lot of folks is going to be, there's going to be an, an emotional response, good, bad, whatever. When someone says, Hey, good morning, by the way, you eat less now. <laughs> right. And it's better if mm -hmm. you can kind of under like anticipate, okay, it's probably going to be for us. It's usually 150 calories I instead of waking up and saying, is it going to be four calories or is it going to be 400? That can be a really yeah. stressful thing for folks. And, and if you can avoid that, I, I think it's probably ideal. Um, since we had a question, someone said Helms looks hungry. Um, I think I don't think you look that hungry. I don't think you, I mean you 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 look fantastic. You look like you're hungry for a win in my book. Uh, That's all I'm hungry for. You you don't and look food. like you're falling apart or anything, which is good. Um, but someone asked a little bit about what you're eating now in terms of like food sources um, mm. since you're you're 19 days out. Um, nine. Oh, sorry, I doubled it up like you did. <laughs> uh, you're nine days out. So, I, I mean, what kind of food sources do you rely on? We, we've talked a little bit about talking foods rather than just units of energy. So what does that look like yeah. for you? Yeah. So right now um, I am on a five low, two high day schedule. So I typically have Saturday, Sunday as around 2,500 calories. And then I'm between uh, 1,600 to 2,000 on the five low days, uh, just depending upon my step count, how I'm feeling, how I'm looking, performance. Uh, and how lethargic I feel and where, how, how lethargic I think I should feel. So we've abolished the refeeds and just to get a little more, uh, leanness before I actually peak for the show and bring calories up to enhance, uh, fullness. I'm on like nine low days in a row. So, uh, that's, that's some context, but like you said, you eat foods, not macros and calories. And I'm actually not necessarily tracking. Like I don't actually open a diet tracking app. I just kind of know cause I I've done this long enough. Um, and then I vary my intake. So typically my day looks like, uh, and I'm very privileged and blessed to be able to do this. My wife and I, we get up in the morning relatively early between six and seven, and we take a walk to one of the lovely cafes in our area. And I'm typically having a meal that is a couple of poached eggs on toast, uh, with a side of some type of vegetable, either, uh, you know, uh, like mushrooms or tomato or, um, or spinach. And then smoked salmon. So um, that's my breakfast. It's typically around 500 calories-ish. Uh, and then for lunch, I am typically having a piece of fruit 
uh, a big old carrot, which I enjoy munching on. Um, and then I have, you'd like this, Eric, cause, uh, I know, I know you're, 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 you're still vegan at the moment. Indeed. And let, yeah, all, you're at, flexitarian. Home, at home I'm vegan, but if I'm eating out or if like a friend prepared a meal, I'll eat dairy and eggs. Okay. So, yeah. so I am basically a flexible pescatarian. You're a flexible lacto-open vegetarian. Yeah. Um, but we're both flexitarians cause bam. Yeah. Um, so at home, I recently, this is, this is maybe a cautionary tale, but I was consuming for lunch almost every single day, a tin of canned tuna as my, uh, as my primary protein source. And I was just randomly thinking like, you know, like skipjack, like white quote unquote tuna is not that high in mercury, but I'm eating it every single day. And I went and got, I decided just to, just to get my mercury tested. And I was like, um, I think the cutoff was like 50 and whatever unit it was. And I was like 52 for, for just have it being like, like meaningful, clinically not great. So I switched to, um, textured pea protein, mm-hmm. which for a, a slightly smaller scan is, can is 20 grams of protein, like 1.7 grams of fat and no carbs. And it's actually quite good. What? Um, and I, and I like it. And it's, I think the brand here is, is fish peas cause it's meant to be like a tuna replacement. But anyway. It's, it's really good. So I, I have that plus the carrot plus the um, the piece of fruit. And then I typically either have uh, like a bag of Quest chips or uh, a nothing naughty protein bar, which I just like. Um, so that's my that's my lunch. Uh, then I go train uh, at some point within hour and a half to two hours after that. Uh, and then after I'm done training, I'll have a, a scoop of whey and, and creatine. Uh, and then we're typically uh, making dinner at home, and that consists of some type of whole grain, uh, some veggies, a protein source, and relatively low-fat uh, sauces or seasonings. And then before bed, depending upon um, how much I'm trying to, to keep my, my energy intake low, I'll either have egg whites with like Cholula or something like that, or a pretty big tub of uh, low-fat Greek yogurt. Um and that's what my low day looks like. If you want to know what my higher days look like, which I'm not having for the next five days, just imagine throwing uh, a couple of servings of, of of carbohydrates on top of that for the most part, or and, and some fats as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, cool. I mean, that you know, um, it doesn't sound too terrible. I mean, you know, I'm sure you, I'm sure you'd like to have more food, but that that's the nature of bodybuilding, right? But yeah, um, one. And I can get that as low as um, no no problem being at fifteen hundred calories if I want, and it's still like you look at it and it's a relatively good diet, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I think a lot of people assume okay, you're nine days out. Some people would say nineteen, but it's nine. You know, a lot of people would say, "Oh, I'm sure it's you know fish and a rice cake, fish and a rice cake." You know, it's just kind of bare yeah. bones, not a lot of variety, no foods that would sound appealing. But like, I thought your your breakfast sounds lovely, you know. Um, yeah. And I'm sure everyone's clamoring to know what I eat every day. I'm still, you know, I, I switched from putting just insane shredded chicken combinations. Now I just do the exact same thing with tofu. I just cube it up, put some kind of sauce on it, put it in some riced cauliflower. And that's like my dinner essentially every day now. So, so hot take tempeh crushes tofu hands down from a uh, texture flavor and uh retention of of uh 
of, of sauce and, and, and like the cooking goodness in stir fry, in my opinion. Well, so done, the, the problem, well, not the problem, the wonderful thing is I really love Indian food. And mm-hmm. so I've got some good sauces like curry sauce and, and some other um, kind of Indian flavors. And so yep. for me, it kind of reminds me if I don't think too hard of, um, oh, I forget what it's called, but you know, some of those Indian dishes have those little chunks of like cheese in them. Paneer. Yeah, paneer. Yeah. So it kind of tricks my brain. I've even seen some Indian restaurants around here who they have for some dishes a paneer option and a tofu option where they just swap yeah. it right in. So yeah. 100% agree. If you're yeah. looking to replace paneer, that's oh, the way to go. It's so good. It's so good. Um, all right. Let's do one more here, and then I think we should probably wrap it up for the night. And folks, uh, we so much appreciate everyone who joined us live here, and we also appreciate Uh, people who are going to listen later. Um, But uh, if we don't get to your questions, uh, first of all, we apologize. We're not going to be able to get to all of them every time. Uh, We will hold on to them. That's the beauty of the internet. Things last forever. We can go back to these, put them, I've kind of got like a running document where I keep questions to answer in future episodes. So just because you asked one tonight and it didn't get answered tonight, it doesn't mean that we're not going to do it next week, the week after, and so on. Um, But like I said, very appreciative of everyone who took the time to join us live. I know it's tricky. We're busy folks. Time zones are what they are. For some of us, it's nighttime. For Helms, it's, uh, what is it, like Saturday over there? I mean, it's- Thursday at noon. Yeah. I mean, you lunch after this. We're spread all over the world. Um, Helms, is there a particular question in here that, that you uh, have your, your sights on? Or would you like me to pick one? I think there's a good one here. What are your thoughts on, oh, sorry, Eric, thoughts on lower rep range uh, for development of hypertrophy? And I'm paraphrasing. Uh, in another way, can strength training help our main goal in hypertrophy? Um, what do you think about that one? You know, uh, that is something that's come up in mass before. Um, I I know we've had some articles. I I try to respect boundaries. That's the way I like to live my life. And I let you folks in the training department do your thing. I stay in the nutrition department in mass, um, but I still get to read and enjoy those articles. Um, My understanding of the literature, mostly through keeping up with mass, to be totally honest, because I'm digging into the nutrition and physiology while you guys are digging into the training studies. uh, My understanding is, you know, that, that old idea that you only do hypertrophy between 8 and 12 reps or 8 and 15 reps, we've largely abandoned that. It's a very efficient way to train for hypertrophy. But of course, you're, you, if you're doing a strength-focused program, um, I, I think the example was like five reps per set. Yeah, less than six. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're still definitely able to put together a program like that that provides a fantastic stimulus for hypertrophy as long as you're, you know, doing progressive overload, you're training hard, uh, you're pushing yourself in the gym, you're doing enough overall volume. You can certainly grow like that. But one of the questions that comes up a lot, and I think this is referring to as, uh, I think this question refers to it kind of slightly indirectly is, will doing more strength training kind of carry over to my hypertrophy training and make it more effective? Um, and this was something that early in my bodybuilding days, I believed big time. I was like, okay, if I really get way stronger on my triples or my sets of fives or even my one rep max, the next time I'm doing sets of eight, I'll be doing it with 
you know, this much more weight. You know, I'll be able to bump that load up. I'm getting more tension on the muscle. So my my thought process was that preceding block of strength training was going to make the next hypertrophy block more effective because I would be training with greater loads. As the research has come out, kind of testing that idea, and Helms, correct me if I'm wrong, the impression I've gotten is that that doesn't really appear to be the case. It, it looks like, you know, lower rep training is a viable way to induce hypertrophy, but it doesn't look like, you know, it doesn't look like there's an advantage of kind of swapping in strength blocks strategically for the purpose of making that next hypertrophy block more effective. I think that's a very accurate characterization. And I think that's a great um, kind of overall answer to it. And I'll provide some more color here and there. So on balance, it is an accurate thing to say that there is no such thing as a quote-unquote hypertrophy rep range. But in practice, you can absolutely make a case that there is a more efficient hypertrophy rep range for what I would describe as like three reasons. Um, yes, you can grow from doubles and triples. Um, however, it is less efficient on a per set basis. So classic a principle of exercise physiology and muscle physiology, more specifically Henneman size principle. Uh, this is the idea that we recruit motor units in order of necessity and in order of size. So on an as needed basis and with uh, higher threshold motor units, which innervate um, fast twitch fibers, which produce more force or can produce more force or, 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 or higher powers is probably more accurate. Uh, they're only brought in when needed. So when I pick up my headphones here, I'm not utilizing the vast majority of the motor units that I need to pick it up. However, if I was to pick it up and move it as fast as I possibly could, you would get a blip of those high threshold motor units to produce enough force to see that acceleration and that speed. Likewise, if I decided to get headphones made of neutron star material, and it was super, super dense, and this actually weighed 300 kilograms, I would have to, well, I wouldn't be able to move it, but I would have to exert all of my, my effort requiring me to recruit everything, not just the high threshold motor units, but everything in order. So when you lift heavy, you are actually recruiting all of your muscle fibers. And that's probably occurring somewhere around the 80%-ish of 1RM or maximum voluntary contraction strength. But the question is, for the not very fatigable muscle fibers and the overall length of time, does the set last long enough to produce a sufficient overall amount of tension like if you think of impulse like force over time and the answer is probably no when we kind of explore the what's too heavy to last long enough to produce hypertrophy there's a couple of studies one is by Mangine another one's by Schoenfeld Mangine and colleagues uh, they were comparing the three to five RM range so on average people are training with like a four RM Schoenfeld is in the two to four RM range and there were slight differences favoring both groups in these two comparisons with Mangene on, I think, one measurement, finding slightly better hypertrophy in the heavier group. But they also rested longer, and they weren't perfect comparisons between protocols. And then Schoenfeld uh, was a little more of a direct comparison between the 2 to 4 versus the 8 to 12 RM range. And they saw better hypertrophy doing three sets of 8 to 12 versus three sets of 2 to 4. So that tells us that somewhere around like four to six reps, is where if it's heavy enough and reasonably close to failure, it doesn't have to be super close to failure, you're starting to get uh, a per set comparison that is equal to a higher rep range. So if we say, you know, just to be safe, like four to five reps, 
that's the lowest amount number of reps per set, or we can quote unquote count it as equivalent to a more moderate or higher rep set. That's probably fine. And the recent meta regression by Robinson would suggest that with higher loads, you don't have to worry about being as close to failure. So a set of four at like say a three, two or four RIR, that's like your eight rep max or heavier. Um, and they did find that around 80% of 1RM, that's when failure stopped mattering quite as much for a stimulus. That's kind of like the bottom end of the heaviest load you can do or the lowest number of reps in combination with proximity to failure before the set, quote unquote, counts on average for everybody. So it's like the lower end of the hypertrophy, quote unquote, rep range where you don't have to do more sets to account for the fact that there's fewer reps per set. And on the other end, we have a practical and then maybe a physiological kind of cap on where the sets start to become less stimulative for the hypertrophy rep range. And the practical one is relatively low. Uh, we have a meta-analysis by Halpern and colleagues looking at repetitions in reserve accuracy. And it basically shows that up to 12 reps, there's a similar uh, amount of inaccuracy in RIR ratings, proximity to failure, how well can you tell how many reps you have left, and knowing that we need to be reasonably close to failure to make a set pretty stimulative. But once you're going over 12 reps, especially with compound movements, lower body movements, anything that produces a lot of fatigue and sensations of discomfort, a higher rating of perceived exertion, if you will, that's not based upon RIR, anything that elevates that is going to make the RIR rating less accurate. And we see that reps over 12 make that point estimate poorer or more variable. So anytime you're doing really high reps and you think you're near failure, you're more likely to be underpredicting. doesn't necessarily mean you are, but on average. Uh, in addition, there's a study by Lassivicius where they did similar volumes on the same exercises of 20, 40, 60, and 80% of 1RM. And when you looked at the 20% of 1RM comparison, not everything was necessarily significant, but it did seem to show in both the upper and lower body that that was producing a little bit less hypertrophy per set. And that's a lot of reps. 20% of 1RM is like 50 reps per set on average. So I think when we look at the practical constraints in the upper lower bounds, you can probably count any set in say the four to five up to say 15 to 20 rep range is about the same if the RIR is, is similar. And if you're reasonably close to failure, um, I would say a two RIR or lower if you're getting above like say eight reps per set. And you can be further from failure if you're going to go heavy and do low reps uh, because it's just so heavy and Henneman size principle. So anyway, that's kind of a broader commentary on the hypertrophy rep range that there are is sort of not really like you could do 10 triples if you wanted to but you could also do like four sets of 10 and, and probably get the same outcome and um and 10 sets of triples is going to be a very hard and very challenging and for some exercise it's simply a bad idea so uh um, be in the gym forever 100 percent, yes so uh for yeah that, that's another thing actually schoenfeld's uh, actually his phd dissertation study it was took a third of the time for the group doing the bodybuilding, but uh, non-significant difference in total volume load to the group that was doing the, the powerlifting protocol, even though they produced similar hypertrophy. But one group did more sets to account for it and took way longer. So yeah, there's, there's many logistic reasons why the hypertrophy rep range is a useful rep range to train for hypertrophy, but it's not strictly physiologically required. Yeah. Definitely. I totally agree. And I have nothing valuable to add. I think you absolutely knocked it out of the park. 
And I think that probably does it for tonight. I've got an early morning. I'm going to be on uh, the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm waking up at 5 a.m. to be on that podcast because I like Steve that much, if you can even believe it. And uh, the last thing I wanted to tell uh, everyone is, first of all, as I've said previously, thanks so much to everyone who joined us live. Um, really, really appreciate that. We will be back in exactly uh, one week. So we'll be back here next Wednesday, 7 p.m. It'll be me and someone else. I'm not sure who yet. It'll be someone from the mass team for sure. Uh, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, there's a few ways you could do that. First of all, you could subscribe to the YouTube page. You could uh, like the video. You could share it with somebody. You could also subscribe to our Instagram account. It's at Mass Research Review. That is our handle. Uh, you could share this show with a friend. YouTube's a great way to do that, but we're also putting these episodes up on pretty much all the major podcasting platforms. So it's a little hard to find since we're so new. You have to search uh, Mass Office Hours, and it should take you right to the show. Um, you know, it's it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that good stuff. Uh, so be sure to uh, to share it with some folks who might like it, if you'd be so kind. And then finally, if you really like what you're what we're doing here. Um, you know, a lot of times throughout these conversations, we talk about mass articles that we've written in the past or massive videos that we've made, mass audio recordings where we chat with each other. The mass research review is what brings us all together, every, everyone on the mass team. Uh, you could consider subscribing to it. We have well over 500 articles, videos, audio summaries, roundtable discussions, a huge catalog of uh, of content dating back several years. I think we're in year seven now. Um, 20, 2017, we started. Yeah, and, and so we have a huge library of, of content. And when you subscribe, you get access to everything. You could keep yourself very, very, very busy working your way through those seven years of content. Uh, we put out a new issue every single month. So if you want to learn more about that, you can check it out at Mass Research Review dot com. Uh, so once again, thanks everyone. We'll see you later and have a good night or morning if you're Helms. Mm-hmm.